welcome everybody to episode 24 of the Netherlands and Mitigate Marriage, so we should be scared of them now. My name is Astrid. Okay, so I'm scared now too. Hi everybody, this is Sam, and I'm pretty sure that last time I was here it was greater than code, but let's just go with it. And joining us again on the show is Rain. Hello everyone, and welcome to the show with Jess. Thank you, Rain, and I'm Jessatron, and I am super excited that today we have a special guest, Alina. Hi, everyone. I'm Selena. Alina is assistant professor at Delft University of Technology, where she researches programming for everyone. She strongly believes everyone can be a programmer, but currently not everyone has access to the right tools and educational materials. She has therefore developed tools to help people program in Excel and Scratch lessons for kids. To date, 10,000 kids follow her MOOC on Scratch. Felina also spreads the love of programming outside of work hours. She teaches a bunch of kids programming each Saturday, organizes the Joy of Coding Conference in Rotterdam, I'm speaking this year, is a host on SE Radio, and runs the RoboCup Junior Competition for Kids in the Netherlands. She loves running, knitting, and card games. Felina, welcome. Thanks. I'm super excited to be in the show. So, Felina, one of the ways that we like to get started is with your origin story. So tell us all about you and what your superpowers are. My origin story, I think my, my superpower is seeing programming where other people don't see programming. My entire PhD dissertation was about programming in spreadsheets. And usually people don't see programming as also including spreadsheets. But I, I did. And I thought, hey, people in, in a spreadsheet, they put in secret codes and then some calculation happens. That's totally the definition of programming. But where we programmers are used to having an IDE with features like testing and debugging and analyzing, I saw people in spreadsheets lacking those type of IDE support-like features. So my entire PhD dissertation was about the summary in a tweet would be building an IDE for spreadsheets. And then after that, I moved on to working on programming education. And there also, I wanted to expand the horizon of what programming could mean to children. That is a wonderful superpower. During the week, do you teach programming to uh, supposed adults? Yes, yes. So in, in my university job is, as a professor, we have half of our time we teach university students, and the other half of the time we do scientific research. So at the university, I teach they call themselves grown-ups. <laughs> and there also I teach a programming course for the non-computer science students. So all the students in my school can pick my course as an elective. And these are architecture students, civil engineering students, aerospace engineering students. So not people that necessarily want to be programmers, but they will be programming, of course, in their job. They will do some modeling, simulation, or analysis. And I teach them programming in, in my elective. That sounds really fascinating. Do you find that people from those other backgrounds bring different perspectives that help them in their programming? Oh, that's a really good question. At least they bring very interesting data sets and problems. So for my course, as an end assignment, the assignment is just show me you learned something, which the students, they love and hate it, of course. <laughs> and I encourage them to find a data set or a problem from their own domain and apply programming to that. So they will do, for example, some data analysis on data they sampled from. This is literally what happened to one of my students. He sampled data from a river in Africa, and then he used his, his skills, data analysis skills in Python to make a stronger analysis of that. So I'm not sure if they bring a different perspective, but I definitely bring really interesting problems and data sets to my course. So all these looking at these end reports for me is super interesting because I learn about a broadness of domain and that keeps fresh for me as well. Have you noticed 
differences between teaching kids how to program and teaching adults how to program? It depends on the type of adults. So I don't think there's a, a real big difference between kids and university age students because they're still quite open-minded and eager to learn and they, they're not scared of learning. But today I gave a course, a programming course to elementary school teachers. And th those are also adults, of course. And that is, is different because these adults have already settled in their brain on the idea that they cannot do programming. They're like, I went to teacher school. I will never learn programming. I'm unable to do this. And I give them lecture material I use on eight, nine, 10 year olds. So it's really not hard in an abstract sense. If you would measure it, it's not hard. But you're like, oh my God, it's programming. So yeah, some type of adults, it's not that they're not smart. I'm sure they're super smart people and they would be able to do it. And also, I mean, I'm saying they have convinced themselves, but I could also say society has done a great job at convincing them that they can never be programmers. And that sticks, of course. Yeah, I see a lot of learned helplessness when I talk to uh, people who are not already, quote unquote, in tech about just to, even to the point where when I talk to people and I introduce myself and they say, what do you do? And I say, oh, I write software. I've learned to leave it at that because most people will go, oh, and sort of like move on to other topics because they don't even feel like they have any handle on it, which, yeah, it's kind of sad. Yeah. And this, this might have to do, of course, also with the with the small definition that people see programming. Yes. They're, they're like, oh, programming, that's apps and websites. And there's, it's hard for them to relate because they don't really know what programming could mean to them. I have noticed that it seems like because people associate programming with math and a lot of people have a lot of really negative experiences with math, then they just automatically say, oh, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. It's just like a lot of abstract math and I don't even like math, so I can't program at all. This is so true. So what we're actually doing with teachers, I'm so happy you brought this math story up, is I'm now trying to teach programming in the context of language class. So in my case, Dutch classes instead of math classes. So I try to focus on exercises that teachers and, and kids normally would do in the scope of reading so, for example, storytelling or practicing with words, because, of course, a lot about programming is also reading. If you have to read a scratch program, you are doing letter and word comprehension, of course, because you're reading the syntax. So instead of focusing on building, having the kids drag the blocks and creating a program, I'm more focusing on reading and deconstruction. So I'm giving them a program. They have to read it and try to understand what it means by clicking the blocks. And I found that that connection to reading rather than to mat mathematics is a good way to convince teachers that it's useful and also to drag it to a space where teachers feel really comfortable. So this emphasis on reading and storytelling can help people feel less scared because usually they're, the teachers are less scared of language than they are of math. Starting with reading programs, that's a really good idea. It's <laughs> yeah. most of what we do anyway. Yeah, and actually, so I have a degree in computer science. I have a PhD in software engineering, but I'm now reading books for elementary school teachers about how we teach language, language didactics, because there's so many good things in there that we can use in programming education that we 
sort of haven't thought about this this one of the assumptions that we all have about programming is that creating a program will teach you how to create programs well well if you think about reading before kids start doing stories writing stories if they're seven or eight maybe their first they, they write their first stories they've already been exposed to hearing stories for four or five years because their parents will read to them they watch movies so before we can even seriously think about teaching kids storytelling skills we share stories with them so maybe we can take some lessons from them into programming where we want to encourage kids to read programs first what do we think programs are and can do and what are some canonical programs that makes sense and only then start focusing on the construction. That's one of the things that's really interesting to me. Hmm. So it occurs to me that uh, a lot of what I've seen about teaching people programming is this idea that you have to get them hooked by giving them small empowering moments of control where they like change something and they see the computer responds to what they said. Is that feasible in this approach that you're talking about? Or do you just focus on reading? And uh, if so, how do you give them those little moments of aha? Those aha moments are absolutely necessary. And of course, a difference between a story and a computer program is that you can change it and that it will do something. You can change a book with a pen, of course, but that's totally different from changing a program. So I'm not like binary flipping to let's do reading only. It's a combination of, so the lesson that I gave today to the teachers in Scratch, you have sprites, which are the elements of the, the game. So a cat and a piano, for example. So I make them create the code for one sprite and the other sprite reacts to that. Then they see the reaction and then I tell them, okay, now go to the other sprite. They've observed the behavior and then I give them a screenshot of the code. They have a little paper booklet from which they work. I give them a screenshot of the code in the other sprite. And then I say, what created that reaction? So I make the one sprite say something to the other and it's a condition. It's a letter eating monster. And if you give it the right letters, then it will be happy. And if you give it the wrong letters, then it will not be happy. It will say, yeah, I don't like those letters. And then there's a difference between consonants and vowels. This is what they practice. It's again in the language setting. And then they switch to the, to the other sprites and then they observe the conditional. And then of course they say, hey, there's a list of things, the vowels. And if I give it something from that list, it will say yes. And otherwise it will say no. So it's, it's definitely a combination because just reading yeah might not have that aha clicky moment although Felina, i love what you're saying about reading because as you were describing it it made me think back on um, when i first started to get interested in programming and it was because i started to see actual programs and realized that i could understand the words i could see what it was doing and that made me actually want to change it and see what else I could make it do. So I think that this concept of looking at something from that perspective is probably something that should be done more. I believe that there is another engineer, she makes this product called Goldie Blocks. And she talked about a similar thing where she made it a story. She wanted to focus on girls and, and learning how to be more comfortable with engineering. And that by giving them a story, they felt more engrossed and engaged with what they were doing as opposed to like giving them just blocks and seeing what they could build. Yeah. And it, it, this is definitely about inclusiveness in general, in general, but also indeed about gender inclusiveness because much of the programming is really focused on building, which just might not be too excited for all of the kids. 
but only for some kids. So I have this story about where I, I come into a classroom and I have this written assignment on paper and I give it to kids. And some of the kids, they take the assignment and they follow it to perfection. Those will be good programmers. But other kids, they look at the assignment, they look at Scratch, and they're like, oh, if I click blocks, I can figure out what it means. And they throw away the assignment, and they want to play in their own space. Those kids will be good programmers as well. And we need to make sure in lesson material that we cater to both of these types of kids. You said they'll be good programmers. So there's like this identity thing in, I am a programmer. I am not a programmer. The teachers are like, I am not a programmer. <laughs> <laughs> Which you'll note is why I say I write software rather than I am a programmer. Yeah. Oh, I love that observation. I never really thought about it. But yeah, that is so, so true. And this also has to do with, it's negative too. It's also you do PHP, therefore you are not a real programmer. Or you do spreadsheets, uh. and therefore you are not a real programmer. But it's also, it's an in-crowd and an, and an outsider group. Even people that are professional programmers and pay to program, there are other people that will say, you are not a programmer. That's a whole other episode. Right, there's this whole thing about real programmer, not a real programmer. But if you rephrase it to, I write software, then... Nobody can tell you, oh, you don't write real software. It's like uh, it runs on a computer. It does the software. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way. That's really cool. Yeah. So just like every kid can write stories, every kid can create programs, or, or every person. And like you said, if we start as children, they haven't absorbed that you can't do this yet. Yeah. I, if you phrase it like that, I love the analogy because all kids, for example, are, they're all drawers. They all like draw pictures. Oh, yeah. And they don't care if they can never be a professional. They still like it. And the same with writing, of course. They all write just crazy adventures. It's not so tied to their identity. No one probably says to a seven-year-old, you can never be a writer. But I think there are people that say to a seven-year-old, you can never be a programmer because, you know, you suck at math. So, yeah, I, I like that. I, I like this idea because it includes more people uh, and it avoids this stigmatization of are you a programmer or are you, are you good at math? But it does draw a new boundary that I think is interesting, which is what do we define as software? Yeah. And you do a lot of work. I was fascinated to read some of your work on on spreadsheets and you talk about refactoring spreadsheets, testing spreadsheets, preventing duplication in spreadsheets, all sorts of things that I think of in my sort of parochial way as being with stuff that programmers do. Yeah. And so for me, it sounds like the argument that you would make is that spreadsheets are software and should be included. Could you maybe tell me if I'm right and expand on that? Yeah, I totally agree and always say that because it's such a good programming system that people don't even realize they're programming. They are making the machine do their bidding, but without the stigma, I think like with all the, all the powers that spreadsheets have, I think that the, the biggest power is that people don't see it as programming, as scary, as threatening. I talk to people in investment banks that built an entire risk dashboard of their company. This investment bank was running on their spreadsheet. And I said, wow, that's so cool. You're like a programmer. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not a programmer. This little thing, it's just a simple model. I am not a programmer. So I think that makes it really strong. And of course, it has some features that make it real programming it's even functional program because a, a, a spreadsheet formula has no side effects it can only take in other formulas and produce a result i would even say that spreadsheets are 
the greatest programming system that has ever existed in the history of programming based on that. So it's functional. It's also reactive because the cells react to each other. It has lots of hip programming features that are overlooked sometimes. I am so happy right now. Same. You mentioned that you built an IDE for spreadsheets. I mean, so is part of the reason that people are like, oh, Excel is terrible because it's not maintainable? And is that a tooling problem? I think it's a twofold problem. It's definitely a tooling problem. And if you go back to what software was in the 60s and the 70s, then it was also unmaintainable spaghetti code, right? Because we didn't have tools and also <laughs> we, didn't have, we didn't have an understanding. These programs, in the beginning of programming, everyone was an end user programmer. There were no professional programmers. People used the tool to do their job being a scientist mainly. So no one thought about what happens if this program lives for 10 years. What happens if someone else has to maintain it? This was not a problem. So people didn't think about it. That's reason A and B, there were no tools. And of course, these two things have to do with each other because if you don't see it's a problem, there will not be tools. And I think spreadsheets are somehow in a similar situation where people don't see them as software. They don't see it as long-lived artifacts. So they don't they don't go looking for maintenance solutions, either in a tool or in, of course, you have guidelines as well. Like don't make your formula too long or don't duplicate stuff all over the place. But people don't go looking for them because they don't feel their programming. Do you think it might be a factor that the actual programming in spreadsheets is, is mostly hidden? You see the, the results, the values, but the, the formulas are hidden away until you go find them. Yeah, that's very interesting. If this is contributing to the fact that people see it as easy, but it might also be contributing to the fact that it's easy to make a mess out of things. If we can, I'd like to go back to that tooling question. Uh, you mentioned that because people don't think of a spreadsheet as programming, they don't look for tools. I have a, sort of the opposite perspective, which is that I, coming to a spreadsheet from a background as a professional software developer, I rely on tests and test-driven development. And I feel like I don't want to put too much logic into a spreadsheet because I don't have the mental model or the tools I would need to test drive a spreadsheet. Is there anything like that out there? We actually worked on that ourselves a little bit, but one of the things that people do, even people that don't come from a software engineering background, is they use spreadsheet formulas to write tests because there is no S unit for spreadsheets, but of course there are formulas. So what we observe people do is write formulas like if A1 is five, then or else okay test formulas, and then sometimes in important spreadsheets, there would be a worksheet called checks in which all these formulas are grouped together and people look at them, okay, 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 okay. And then if everything is okay, then this model can be sent out. So we worked on a tool called Expector that can harvest those test formulas and put them into a test suite, which is just a hidden worksheet in a spreadsheet. And then based on those, you can run those tests and it even shows you coverage and uncovered cells. So we definitely worked on looking at behavior that people already showed to a certain extent, about 10% of spreadsheets we found in the field has those type of test formulas. And then putting that into a testing system because you want to avoid overloading people that aren't really ready for that type of thinking with ideas from a totally different field. So we really wanted to avoid giving them Visual Studio, but just (laughs) 
make tools, build on what they do rather than just bringing in stuff. That's really cool. Thank you. We call spreadsheets the best programming system. Yes. It sounds like your qualification for the best programming system is the most people can program in it, can make the computer do their bidding. Yes. And by most people, you mean a pretty broad range. Do you think everybody should be familiar enough with programming to be able to use it? Yeah. Everyone is many people. I mean, yes, in a sense that we also want everyone to be able to read and write. This is not possible because some people cannot do it. But still, in education, we want to focus on getting most people to be able to read and write. So in that sense, yes, everyone. I guess we try to make everyone able to read and write, but we don't require everyone to do calculus. Maybe programming is somewhere in that scale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also the reading and writing, of course, that we want everyone to learn is at a basic level. Not everyone needs to be able to author a novel. And some people don't, for different reasons, that's where I was going with that. Some people don't have the creativity, other people don't have the stamina, other people might not just have the spelling skills or the marketing skills or the social skills to find a publisher. For all of these reasons, not everyone is a novel writer, but still we want a level of. But maybe kind of like more people can read than can write something that someone else would want to read. Um, yeah. If we can start with the reading of programs, maybe the basic skill is being able to read a program enough to figure out how to interact with it and get it to respond positively. Yes. And this is also, there are diff different reasons why I think it's really important for kids to program. And one of the reasons is what you just touched upon. I would like people to be able to read a program and have some sense of what is going on. Some, if we're talking about the firmware of your pacemaker or systems that you really depend on or a website that you're, you're going to sub full-heartedly submit personal information to, we would like more people than now to be able, if they really wanted to, to understand what is going on. Likewise, if you want to read up about a, a disease someone in your family has, you can read a scientific paper about that disease, even though it's hard, but sometimes it's really important. And you want to at least have the opportunity to dig into something if it's super important. Oh, yeah. So one time I was like trying to do something on my router at home and the instructions on the website were like, push this button. And I'm like, that button is grayed out. And it was like totally buggy and I, it wouldn't ungrade the button uh, so I looked at the source code for the page and I was like, well, if I were able to push that button, it would do this. So I ran that in the console and it totally worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is exactly the kind of thing that doesn't require a professional programmer. Exactly. And I want more people to have that level of, I know more or less what's in here. And if I need it, I can figure it out. And you, what you're saying is exactly right. You don't need to be able to write a CRM system or source code for a nuclear power plant. You don't have to have the level of to be a professional developer to do something like that, to look into a little bit of source code and at least understand what it's doing there and adapt it if needed. Those are different skill levels. And I think they really relate to writing. You don't need to be a novel author to be able to read a relatively difficult newspaper article about the topic that you are interested in. So, Felina, it kind of sounds like you're talking about, like, digital literacy, like, 
the ability to just be able to reason about your, you know, digital environment because you know something about the programming languages, right? Yes, definitely. And it kind of reminds me of, uh, I was having a discussion with someone a long time ago about whether or not people should learn how to program. And there's always a lot of opinions about whether everybody should and everybody shouldn't. And what you're saying reminds me of when people used to talk about learning to read and write, like way back in, I think, the Enlightenment period, because everybody didn't read. It wasn't required. You didn't have to. It wasn't necessary for your job. Uh, a lot of the people who were able to read and write were like the clergy or aristocrats. And it was kind of seen as this highfalutin thing that only somebody who has the time would do. And I kind of feel like that's what's going on right now where programming and being a software developer and being able to read and write software is seen as like a luxury. You don't have to have it. There's other people who do that for you. And then when people used to sit around and discuss, you know, whether they should learn how to read and write, I think what they were really trying to get at is, is reading and writing going to be something that becomes the bedrock of our society so that in the future, if you can't read and write, are you going to be at such a disadvantage that you can't participate? In which case they were right. Like, yes, I mean, you need, and in a lot of societies today, if you can't read and write, you can't do things like drive down the street or go to the grocery store or pay your bills. Yeah. And do, so do you think that with programming, that it's going to be like that in the future, where if you can't look at a program and be able to at least kind of understand what's going on, it's going to inhibit your ability to fully participate? Yes. And also, this is where I bring my Dutch liberal socialist agenda because what you were saying about the time where not everyone could read and write, that was also, of course, greatly about power. Not everyone could write. So we only heard the perspective of some people. If you look at history from the Roman age, you don't see everyone's history. You see the history of people that could write. And not everyone could read, so not everyone could fully participate. And I feel somehow we're also in that situation for programming. We don't see their programs. We don't see what many, many people could create because programming is only for white boys, basically. So this democratization of writing has, of course, also made possible hear different voices, maybe somewhat towards the extreme, because, you know, you have Twitter and you need to listen to many people that maybe rather had that they couldn't write. But it's also given us the ability to hear many, many stories that would have all otherwise be hidden to us. And I am totally looking forward to living in a world where we will see more programs for more diverse people in the programming community. In the chat, Sam asked, what's the programming equivalent of a public library? Oh, uh, oh that's interesting. And then someone says open source. Non-toxic open source, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Selena, you mentioned earlier that there are like some canonical programs that people can read. Do those exist like on your Scratch profile or something? I like thinking about this. So they don't exist. They should exist. So there are some canonical stories like lovers want to get together, but something is blocking them and then it, it ends well. Or lovers want to get together and something is blocking them, but they overcome it. Or someone goes on a quest to find something. It takes really long. They eventually get it. These are stories that kids, for example, will apply in their writing. Those those simple stories that if you go to IMDb or the public library, it will be like tick, 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 tick. Many of them are like that. 
So what would be the list of canonical programs that kids could apply in their learning? I don't know. But now I want to stop talking with you and think about that. Well, I can tell you it's not quicksort. (laughs) (laughs) And it's definitely not quicksort on a whiteboard. (laughs) It's not reversing a string. It's not a rat black tree. It's none of those things. I think that the question actually goes deeper than just what's the code that you can read because a public library offers a lot more benefit than just being a place where there are books. Yeah. You know, it's a free, open, uh, mostly safe space that's heated in the winter and, you know, cooled in the summer. It's available to everyone. And I think beyond just having a bunch of books that you can read, I think there are, if we're going to talk about what would be the software equivalent, we have to talk about what are all of the values that a public library provides. Yeah, like community and adult supervision or adult guidance where a librarian can know you after a while and suggest you books and you can meet people that also like reading. Those are all interesting functions. Absolutely. And also curation. There's a lot of making sure that you have the right things available, like the basics available. Yeah. Especially for kids' books, I don't know if this exists in the U.S., but probably for kids' books in the Netherlands, you have levels. So they have stickers on them with A, B, C, which tells you more or less what level it is. So as a kid, you can find something that fits your reading level, and then you know you're advancing. This is also important, of course. I mean, if you think of open source as a public library and some of the roles it could fill, you would go on it and then where would you start? Whereas if you're a small kid, you you just go to the age five section and there are books without letters because you can't read yet. It's still for you. It feels like for you, it has pictures that make you feel in your place. I'm going to jump on your uh, bandwagon here and point out that public libraries are one of the most successful socialist programs ever introduced into the United States. Yeah, yeah. that's it's probably yep. true. But they also have a really long history of protecting information, too, of being a safe place for controversial things or things that everybody doesn't necessarily agree with, but being protected because it has value. And that's been the function largely of librarians. So I wonder if instead of asking what's the programming equivalent of a library, maybe what I should have asked is what's the programming equivalent of a librarian? Of a librarian, yes. Because librarians are awesome. Yes. Maybe we can get a librarian on to get their thought on that, because from the ones that I know, they have lots of really good thoughts uh, about all sorts of things. But doesn't that kind of already exist? Because doesn't a lot of our theories about information come from library science? Yeah, I don't know anybody who's a programmer that has a background in library science. Oh, I know a couple and they are the best. I love programmers who used to be librarians. Yeah, because they're thinking about like knowledge management and how you how you group information. It's a it's a different way of looking at it than just, you know, how do I make it awesome? How do I make it fast? Yeah. And also, I know, at least in the Netherlands, that like libraries are searching for their place in a changing world. And some of the libraries here are hosting coder dojos, for example, on Saturdays to get kids into programming because they see that's what kids also need. So somehow maybe they are reaching out to the programming world, but we're not really finding each other a lot. Well, maybe that's because of what you brought up earlier about this idea of what is a programmer, what is programming, and there being such a big distinction between what some people believe a real program is versus what's not a real program. 
Right. As programmers, we tend to focus on tools and technology, whereas I think perhaps there's a lot more value to be had in thinking about people and communication. Yeah, this is very true. And I think one of the reasons might be that we have all, like what, I don't remember, someone brought up math. And I think that's one of the reasons that we see it because we've all framed programming as, as technical and that's by nature almost technical professions are about technical skills and not so much, even though also they should be more about people skills, but they're not. So by calling it software engineering, is that really a good frame? Because that engineering, that technical space is not really about people. So program construction or programming as more literary activity might also bring a different frame about how we interact with each other. One of the things I wanted to mention to bring out my my smallest soapbox is that there's this idea that I've seen going around in programming communities that STEM education is superior to other education or obsoletes other forms of education, especially uh, uh, liberal so arts. And I can't stand that idea. Um, yeah, because, someone tweeted so, that this week. They tweeted something like, yeah, if you put a STEM major in a, in a writing class, they would get an A. But the other way around, the liberal arts students couldn't do anything in our field. Yeah, yeah I, may, I may have responded to that. Uh. <laughs> my experience is that so many of the skills that make me a relatively decent programmer have nothing to do with the syntax of programs or data structures or algorithms. It has to do with forming mental models of, of systems and comprehension, you know, reading comprehension even, and uh, giving and receiving criticism, all sorts of things that you don't get so much uh, as the focus of a computer science education, but you do get as, as part of the focus of a liberal arts education. Yeah, totally. And also, if I see my students writing at an engineering school, like, oh, I, they could use so much more practice in writing and not just the spelling and the grammar, but writing as crafting a story around something you encounter. And I always say to kids that I work with, whatever you will practice, you will get better at. Even, you, you, you might not be a top sports player in soccer, but if you practice it, you will advance to a certain extent. So if our students, they don't practice writing hardly in any of their courses, it's always an afterthought. It's always in a course about object-oriented programming or five study credits. One credit will be devoted to presentation and they get one lecture about it. It's never a thing. They really deliberately practice. So then probably the reverse of my statement is also true. If you don't practice something, you will, will not get better at it. So if we don't practice these type of skills, then ah, our students will be better at it. Very Ooh, true. Speaking of deliberate practice, uh, you hinted before the show that you have ideas around things that we can do to get better at programming other than programming. Yes. Last week, I was in Norway at a conference called BoosterConf. It was, by the way, a super awesome conference that I really like. So you should all go there next year. It was great. And they let me do a code and poetry workshop, which was awesome. So what I did there is I had people create poems with source code by looking at the ingredients that poems normally have and finding them in your algorithms. And this sounds super weird. So, for example, one of the exercises that was in there is I had people look at a line of code and count the syllables. 
So how many syllables does X is five have? This seems the easiest question ever. If you really think about it, how do you pronounce the equal signs in your brain? Is that X equals five? Or is it X is five? Or maybe it's X becomes five? Or X stores five? What does it even mean that the sign statement? And this really like opened the minds of many people in my course. They're like, oh, wow, I never really thought about how the code feels in my brain, how I read it out loud. And some people really took it through. So, for example, they said, if I'm defining a function, a method, then it's f takes x, for example, as an integer, the integer x. But if it's a function call, then it's f of x. So even the context could define the pronunciation of a symbol. And that was a simple exercise. This is one of the first things you would do if you would teach someone creative writing is read it aloud to yourself and see how it feels. Yet this is something we never do in source code. So I had lots of fun. So your example, Melina, actually makes me think that the, your earlier theory that maybe software is more related to writing than we originally thought and language makes a lot of sense because it kind of reminds me of the types of rules that you have in a language like English where it's I before E except after C because there's always conditions with which you have to think about what you're doing. And it's not just a blanket one explanation for how something is. It always has to be interpreted. Yes. This ties in a little bit to what we were talking about before with, you know, who are real programmers? What are real programs? Why isn't an Excel spreadsheet considered, you know, a program? And I think a lot of it has to do with programmers have a very narrow view of what constitutes a program. You know, it's text in a file, but not any text, not prose, not poetry, text in a file with a very specific syntax and, you know, format and anything else, you know, visual programming is, is mostly ignored. Spreadsheets aren't considered to be programming. Nothing else counts. Yes. And also, to, the, the assumption is to get better at it, you just have to do it a lot. And this assumption goes really deep in our community. If you apply for a job, people will look at your hobby Saturday projects, not as, as a means of deliberate practice, as a means of building more stuff. And I like what Jess is saying in the chat. I'm going to repeat it because she's in an airport and her audio is a bit noisy. She says, it's like playing the piano. To get better at speed, you have to play well slowly. You have to study each sound. And this is somewhat similar, I think, to programming, where to get better at it, you have to look at it from different perspectives. You have to do different things. Sometimes you're playing an entire piano piece. I really love the analogy, Jess. But sometimes also you're just doing three notes repeated over and over again. So some of the things, of course, there are people in programming that do that, like with katas, that are really nice, small, deliberate exercises of practicing. But we could totally use more, more of that. And I think that only those doing those wacky exercises, like counting the syllable, syllables in the line of code, will also contribute to what the definition of programming is because some people started to make really crazy programs of course for their own enjoyment and and they totally say i i made them do sorting algorithms just because there are a lot of them and you can easily copy paste the code from stack overflow to to get going on the syllable counting some people stuck with that but other people started to write things that 
made no sense, which can be really nice for your brain. So katas come from, you know, martial arts, this idea that forced repetition of particular forms builds this muscle memory. Yeah. Uh, and it seems to me like a lot of the, the education and programming is being created by people who aren't so much educators. Um, a lot of it is programmers who are writing books on programming and not trained educators who are writing books on programming. And it seems like a lot of the things you're talking about are ideas around pedagogy that we know about in other fields, liberal arts and things. Why don't we have that so much coming in to programming education? Why are we pulling in katas, for instance, instead of something from liberal arts? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a good question. I don't know why other people are doing it, but I can hypothesize about, for example, a school teacher that would go to a conference about programming, how they would feel and be treated if they would say, hey, I have lots of programming education skills. Who wants to collaborate with me? I don't really think that we, and of course I'm generalizing here, and there are lots of great people in the programming community that I love. However, many people like that tweet we were talking about before, have such a huge disdain of all sorts of skills that aren't labeled as technical that those type of collaborations are pretty hard. Yeah, we have this arrogance and this myopia in the field that the things that we know we are really good at are the only things that matter. And if you're not good at the, exactly those same things in exactly the same way that I am, then, well, I'm sorry, but you're just not a real programmer. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. I never really realized or vocalized the fact that katas come from martial arts, which is interesting because they could also have come from writing education because they have the, the same similar, if you're learning about spelling, the only way you're going to learn about spelling is practicing. So you are just, the teacher reads 25 words and you write them and we do that every week. So this is of course similar to those types of deliberate practice that muscle memory building is also alike to, but it didn't really come from that area because probably we think martial arts is cool and liberal arts is weak. Mm -hmm. in a I think it might have something to do with this idea of programming as being mystical, magical, and only certain <laughs> people have the ability. Uh, yeah. It's a similar thing with martial arts. If you don't know martial arts and you see somebody perform any type of martial arts, you're amazed because it seems inhuman. And, and Jessica is saying in the chat, we think similar things about music. And it's it's also true that if you see a professional musician, especially someone who's playing an instrument perform, um, you are usually amazed because it seems like something you couldn't do. Whereas a lot of things that we think of as liberal arts, like the ability to read and comprehend critical thinking, they're not things that when you see it happening, looks like, oh, I could never do that, even though you're not actually understanding all the complexity that might go into it, or even understanding the difference between your skill and their skill, because it's not so easy to just look at it and see the difference. So I think that might be contributing to yes, why there's exactly. less respect for it. it. It has to do with whether or not we believe you need an innate ability to do it or whether it's something you can train, which, by the way, is it, there's lots of research that shows that the more people believe innate ability is needed for a skill, the less women will participate in the field. There is also this thing that I think happens once you get the skills of a programmer, we seem to want to create this 
mystique or mysticism around them to prevent them from being understood by others. And one of the tropes that I've seen in programming is this idea of the master programmer as sort of the Zen master with these unintelligible you know, koans that are supposed to be deep wisdom, but really just don't make any sense to anyone as a way of sort of protecting that knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, something you just said, Felina, made me think about medicine. Uh, you were saying that the more that a skill seems to be needed, the less that women will participate. Is that what you said? No, no. I said the more people believe that a skill is innate, so that you need to be born with the right genes to do it, the more uh -huh. people believe that, the less women participate in the field. So this is very true, for example, for mathematics. We all, as a society, believe and continue to repeat the fact that if you're not good at math, you will never be good at it. You have to have the right brain. I don't know if your language has that, but my language even has a thing. It's called the math knob. If people are really smart in math, people will say, oh, he really has a math knob in his brain. Like physically, your brain will be different <laughs> if you're really good at math. That's something people say. And the more That's people very interesting. The more people believe that this is a known fact, the less women will participate because they think, oh, I don't have it, so I'll go do something else. They don't think, oh, if I practice a lot, then I will get better. And this is why I tell my kids in my schools all the time, if you practice something, you will get better at it. That's the truth I want them to remember and not, ah, if you don't have it by age eight, never mind. And this is also, of course, something that we really profess in programming because we we have these stories about oh i told myself programming when i was 10 because i'm so smart or oh, you're 17 you don't do it yet you're lost for life interesting it seems to me uh correct me if i'm wrong but the jargon that i've heard related to this is this idea of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset where students, if they, if they are taught that there's a growth mindset, which is that they can improve by practicing, um, then they will, in fact, improve by practicing. Yes. Yeah, those things are, are definitely related to that innate ability type of thing. Okay, so one of the things that it made me, the reason why I was thinking about medicine, which may not exactly fit now, is because um, a lot of social scientists, they study the, the medicalization of childbirth basically, meaning that it used to be that when you had children, you know, there were midwives and that was like a woman's thing. And there was usually a bunch of women who helped you have a baby. And then in, at least in Western societies, it started to become medicalized in the sense that you needed a doctor and the doctors were usually male. And the doctors would tell you how to have a baby, how to nurse your child. And it started to become this thing that you didn't have anymore. It wasn't like an innate thing that you could have anymore as a woman. You had to have another professional help you or else you were being like primitive or savage. And it sounds kind of similar to this evolution of programming and how people think about programming. Because from what I understand, it used to be that a lot of women participated in software engineering or writing because it was seen as more administrative and that the real innovation was going to come from actually building the devices and building the hardware, which was usually more male dominated. But then over time, when you started to see the power of what you could do with software and not just hardware, it became this professional thing that you needed to have certain abilities for. And then the women slowly were kind of phased out of it. And it seems like a very similar thing. So it's interesting that there's this innate thing going on with something like mathematics where you have it because it also feels like if you look at history it's a thing that we could change we could have this you could lose the ability for it to be just because you have it innately meaning something 
Yeah, I well, I never consider it like that, but yes, that that's very true. That sometimes something starts out as being very male-dominated profession, and it can turn into a female-dominated profession as well. So the opposite can also happen. For example, with school teachers, this really happened in the Netherlands, probably where where you live as as well. When our parents went to school, all the teachers were male. There were lo- little female teachers. And then females took over the field. And with it, it lost prestige as well. I used to be taught in school by a, a male teacher in an elementary school that was also in city council. That was the like the level of respect that teachers would have, that they could be in a teacher and in city council at the same time. I think that totally changed due to more females participating in the job. So this happens two ways. More men take over and it's seen as more serious and a reverse practice was shit. But also more girls, women take over and then it loses respect and appeal. So is this why people in the programming community fight against what is real programming? Because we can't let too many people in? I don't know why people feel the need to fight what real programming is. That's I'm not a psychologist. I have some hypotheses, but I don't really know. I don't feel qualified to speak about that. No, no, neither do we. We just speculate. Yeah. <laughs> there is, of course, this, this power that I was talking about before that we programmers control the world in a sense. If you look at you know what happened with US elections, with hacking, filter bubble, we programmers do have some sort of control over the world that comes with some respect. And also that respect is growing. Nerds used to be nerdy and now we're getting more respect. Maybe people don't want to their super profession to be diluted, maybe. Yeah, I think it has something to do with that. I think it's also not just programmers. I think if you look at lawyers, they do something similar and doctors will do something similar. If you talk to people on Wall Street, they are very sure that their job is necessary. I'm not so sure because money is imaginary. But I think it's a professional thing where you have to do this. Yeah, it's like I had to do all these hard things to get to this job. So I'm not going to just make it easy for you to do half those things and be able to do what I do. That's not fair. I think it's actually a double whammy. It's both that. It's both, you know, which school did you go to? Um, what's your training? And it's also a, a form of essentialism, which is either you're born to be a programmer or you're not. Uh, so I think we get hit from both angles. Really yeah. Okay, but since we're like all, all benevolent and we actually do want other people to be able to write programs and use them, what can we do to help? What can we do to do a little piece of what you do and spread the knowledge? Yeah, so one of the things, I gave a, a talk at Booster Conference as well last week, and I ended that with what I wanted to give to people in the audience there. I said, if people tell you they're programmers, you have to believe them. If people say they're programming, they probably are, which I think is one of the things that we could start with. If you're at a conference and someone says, hey, I'm a programmer, and turns out they're, oh, they've only just started, or they only, I'm making air quotes now, they only know PHP, they're still programmers. I think that's like a small thing that we can all do to incorporate more people into programming. Don't say, oh, you're just a front-ender or you're just a designer. If we try to pay attention to those small things, and I will say 
that I will admit that I've been guilty of thinking and sometimes even saying those things as well, because we all like to feel powerful and better than other people. Sure, sure, you know. So this happens if you think, oh, you're just this, or you don't really, you don't seriously. If I could give the listeners one thing to ponder on, maybe it's really try to limit that type of belittling or also surprise. People say to me all the time, you're really a programmer? You're really a professor in software engineering? This is how we continue the culture. So that was a perfect transition into uh, the way we usually like to end our show, which is to do uh, reflections or calls to action. And uh, it sounds like you actually just did both. But <laughs> is there anything else that you would like to add as part of that? Maybe one thing, because I know there are probably listeners, if, if they listen to the show for this long, maybe there are listeners that are also doing programming education. They are teaching at their local school or maybe they're even they're teaching their kids. Try not to contaminate their brains with what you think programming is. If kids want to use programming to make a song or a story or an artwork, those things are fine too. Don't push them too much to building useful stuff because many of the things kids are doing are about practicing and not about being good. So if, you're, if your kid is drawing, you're not going to say, let's make something that could hang in a museum. And sometimes I see educators and parents pushing too much the profession of programming onto their kids and not just letting them play with stuff in a clearly playful way. And this is sometimes really well-meant. So you're like, oh, I want my kid to know programming because it's useful, but I want people more to think of it like you want your kids to program because it's another form of self-expression. I have a ton of takeaways from this episode, but one of them is that Brain said that the hard part of programming for him, one of them is forming mental models of systems. And Felina talked a lot about reading programming and reading comprehension, just understanding programs. So I'm happy with this because it places an explicit value on reading through the code in, say, a new service that I haven't modified before, new to me. I'm forming a model of it. And I've also noticed that if in forming that model, I can draw a picture, people on the team get super happy. So I'm going to do that more and like feel better about it. Yes, I agree. Um, My reflection is actually kind of similar to what you just said, Jessica, which is thinking about programming as in thinking about writing and thinking about it as language more so than about building blocks, which when you were talking about that, Felina, it just made a lot of sense to me. And it's, it makes it easier for me to think about tackling stuff that might be harder because I feel really confident in my ability to read and, (laughs) and understand And I don't always know how to build everything I want to build. So I think that's really useful advice. Yeah. So a few times in this episode, we've talked about the challenge of convincing people that they can program when it involves math. And there are two ends that you can approach that from. And we spent some time on one of them, which is to point out that there is a lot of programming that doesn't need to involve math. And I'd like to take a whack at the other end of the stick, which is that some programming does involve math, but it's not, for the most part, the math that you hated from high school. Yes. And that the reason you hated that math in high school is that math education in our schools and around the world is fundamentally broken and bad and teaches people that math is awful and it is not so. And so what I would like to recommend is a book uh, by Paul Lockhart called A Mathematician's Lament, which 
describes how it's broken, what we can do to fix it, and describes how interesting and fun math can actually be. It's not uh, about road memorization and road application of rules. It's intuitive. It's creative. It's even an artistic pursuit. Uh, so I would recommend that book to anyone who is daunted by this idea that they have to learn math and carries the baggage from awful algebra two with them. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Thanks for the suggestion. It was uh, it was originally a 25 page essay, but it's also a, it was expanded into a full book. The essay is free, but the book and the book is on uh, Amazon. Cool. So throughout this uh, episode, uh, I've been thinking just in the back of my head about this idea of, of code literacy or cl- code fluency, which reminds me of this this idea that I first ran across from Jim Shore and Diana Larson in their work on what they call agile fluency, um, which, as I understand it, came out of a group here in Portland called Language Hunters, that they, uh, they have this model of having levels of fluency. And what really was important for me was this idea that you can be fluent at a very low level of proficiency and still be fluent, where they they define fluency as like what you can say uh, without really having to think about it. And that really, to me, is just kind of a useful reminder that we don't have to look down on somebody because they're not fluent at a high level of proficiency. Um, We can encourage people to become fluent at whatever level they're at, and that's still really useful for people. That's it for me. Thank you, Felina, for coming on the show today. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week.